This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at productivity in the workplace and beyond. How changing your personal rhetoric can help you refocus your efforts. How much more leisure time you have than you think you have. And why having partners in crime can make any hill look less steep. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Laura Vanderkam. Laura is the author of, most recently, I Know How She Does It, How Successful Women Make the Most of Their Time. She's also the author of 168 Hours, You Have More Time Than You Think, and the What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast series of eBooks. Laura is a frequent contributor to FastCompany.com and is a member of USA Today's Board of Contributors. Her work has appeared in publications like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Fortune, and she has appeared on the Today Show, Fox and Friends, and in numerous other TV outlets to discuss her ideas on time management, productivity, and much more. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure to have you on. So, Laura, you've written a number of books, but I want to start off asking about 168 hours In the process of writing the book, you collected and compiled a lot of data regarding how people perceive that they spend their time versus how they actually spend their time. What were some of the biggest conclusions about how people spend their time that you took away from that research? Well, a lot of it is really good news. Um, We work fewer hours than we think we do. We sleep more hours than we think we do, um, and and consequently, life is a, a bit more sustainable than you might imagine from all the talk about um, our harried, crazy, busy lives. Uh, and and so, I think it's important to know that that gap is there, which is human nature to to overestimate the things we don't want to do and underestimate the things we do. Because when you really know where the time goes, then you can start to use it better. And you suggest that one of the quickest ways we can begin focusing our time better is to change our personal rhetoric or internal monologue. So instead of saying, I don't have time to do this, we should say, I won't do this because it's not a priority. What impact does this seemingly subtle change have? Well, it puts us back in control of our time. Saying, I don't have time for that sounds like there's some sort of oppressive larger force that is preventing you from doing something you really want to do. And I know in many cases that's just an excuse. Saying I don't have time for something means you don't want to do it. And that's perfectly fine. We should own that. (laughs) But we don't like to say that. So we say that I don't have time. Uh, But using the language, at least to ourselves, that it's not a priority reminds us that we do have time for whatever is a priority. Um, A good way to be honest about this with yourself uh, is to ask, well, whatever you're saying, you don't have time to do, if, if somebody offered to pay you a 
handsome sum of money to do it. Would you find the time? Uh, and probably the answer is yes, you would. Uh, and, and so that's just a way you can remind yourself that actually it's not that high up your priority list. And, you know, I think we should, we should own that and be honest about it. And even if it's not politically correct, I mean, you know, if you could say to yourself, I don't have time to edit your resume, sweetie, because it's not a priority. I mean, <laughs> it sounds hard, but if it's true, it's true. And you need to recognize that and decide if that's the direction you want to go. And, and let me go back to the research for 168 hours and ask some questions there, because we all feel like we're in a world where technology is moving so fast. We have so many things coming at us and not enough time to keep up with the rush of modern day life. But your research shows that when actually recorded, the average person has about 30 hours per week of leisure time, which adds up to about four hours per day. So when people were actually surveyed, they were hard-pressed to find even 15 minutes of free time to sit in a hammock. That's a huge difference. How does this discrepancy exist? Well, often we don't think of leisure time as leisure. I mean, people will claim that they have no time for leisure, and yet they have television shows they watch regularly. And I don't think that television is almost ever not leisure. I mean, that's a pretty quintessential leisure time activity. And yet we have this blind spot. I don't really quite understand it. I, I, there was a fascinating uh, Dr. Phil episode I watched once where um, it was about how uh, the, the female viewers were talking about how they had no time. They had no time, no leisure time. And so, well, you know, watching Dr. Phil is pretty much the definition of a leisure time activity. If you are watching this show, you have leisure time. And yet I believe that these women honestly thought that they were beleaguered and pressed for time. And I think it's that we're just not being mindful of it. We're not thinking like, oh, that is time, that I'm doing something that I've chosen to do, even if it's not sitting in a spa. Uh, watching television is leisure. You know, Flipping through a magazine is leisure. Uh, there's lots of things we do that we may not register as such. It may also come in shorter blocks of time. And so those are hard to see that those are, are leisure as well. But we do have time. And if we start with the assumption that, yes, I have, let's say, 30 hours of leisure time a week, then it becomes this more fun hunt of, well, let me see where it is. And once I know where that time might be, then I can start to use it for things I find more enjoyable than, than watching Dr. Phil. <laughs> no, no offense, Dr. Phil. Uh, okay, so uh, in 168 hours, Laura, you cite an interesting study that asked students to wear a weighted backpack and then estimate how steep they believed the hill in front of them to be. And the results were surprising. Those students with a friend next to them would perceive the hill to be much less steep than those students who stood alone. So how do you recommend that we use our friends to make our 168-hour hill look less steep? Well, friends are so important um, to life and to enjoying life. And yet when you get busy with career and having a family, it's easy to let friendships fall by the wayside. Um, and, you know, that's part of that is life, uh, that not every friendship needs to last for the rest of, of your lifetime, but it does make life more enjoyable and make the 168-hour hill seem less steep if we have people walking alongside us with our journey. So I, it's like any other thing. You have to make it a priority and, and make it happen. Um, you know, the easiest thing is to look at people who appear regularly in your life and see if you might be able to elevate 
those relationships from sort of casual acquaintances to better friends. And that's partly just about spending time with people. So say if somebody wants to meet you for lunch or coffee or do a workout together, that's a great way to multitask well. Um, but you also can sort of take the long view of it. Uh, a lot of people think, well, I, I try to make 10 friends in a day, I go to one event and try to make 10 friends. Well, that's not really going to happen. But if you add one new good friend every four months, you would have six really good friends in two years. And, and that's quite a bit. So um, taking the long view and being patient and, and making it a priority within your time are the ways to build friendships within a busy life. So Laura, there are plenty of other productivity books on the market. That's something you write about in the book. Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week is a frequently cited one in this day and age. With all the literature that's out there already on the subject, why did you feel compelled to write 168 hours, and what would you say makes it different from the competition? So I think what's different about it is that it takes a more holistic view of time. Um, I often get asked about how to save bits of time here and there, various tips and tricks on, on shaving bits of time off other things in order to save up time to do the good stuff. And I don't think that it actually works that way. <laughs> I think that we have to put the good stuff in first and then other stuff will naturally take less time. And so it's more productive to ask, well, what do I want to be spending more time doing? Uh, what would I like to be doing with my life? Uh, and, and people often don't even think about that. We assume we have no time, and so we don't ask what we want to do with it. Um, but, you know, we, we can, and, and that's what 168 hours is about. I often also argue that we limit ourselves by looking only at a day. Most of us think of our lives and our schedules in terms of days, and then we feel somewhat defeated because it seems like there isn't time in 24 hours to get to everything we want to do, and, and probably there isn't. But we don't live our lives in 24 hours. We actually live our lives in the cycle of weeks, which is 168 hours. And if you look at the whole of 168 hours, the time is probably there to do whatever matters to you uh, and, and just a little bit more in terms of that 168 hour equation. If you work for 40 hours, so that's full time, and sleep eight hours a night, that's 56 per week, that leaves 72 hours for other things. And if you work 50 hours, that leaves 62 hours for other things. If you work 60 hours, that leaves 52 hours for other things. So even if you were working way more than full time hours, I think in 52 hours a week, you could find three hours to exercise and two hours to volunteer and time to read to your kids and time to go on a date with your partner. I mean, the time is there. We just have to figure out how to seize it and make best use of it. Um, so I really hope that people would see time more holistically that way um, and look at the whole week and ask themselves first what they want to be doing with their time and start from there. And we, we live our lives not just in days, weeks, and months, but also in dreams. You write about the concept of a list of 100 dreams that you found to be beneficial. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, so yes, this list of a hundred dreams was, um, something that a career coach shared with me a few years ago, and it's an unedited list of anything you want to do or have more of in life. And I've done this a few times. It, the first third is pretty easy, like 
lots of people want to travel more. And so the first third is the 33 countries you want to visit. Um, <laughs> after that, it gets a little bit more difficult. And then by the last third, you're kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel, but you're really thinking a lot about what might be attractive to you, what you might wish to do. And you start coming up with ideas of like, Oh, I could do that this weekend. I mean, you know, the first third is like spend a month in Italy learning to cook Italian food. But the number 97 is visit that state park. That's an hour away. And I've lived here four years and never, gone to so well okay well that I could start doing and you start trying these things out and you learn a little bit more about what you're good at and what you like and what makes you happy and then once you know those things you can start adding them into your life more regularly and let me ask you about your latest book it's titled I know how she does it which is of course a play on the book and movie I don't know how she does it so in writing your latest book what did you find that's different for women than men when it comes to managing their time well, I don't think fundamentally there is anything different about how women manage their time versus how men manage their time. The reason I focused on women is that we seem to have this cultural narrative that it's impossible for women to have it all. And people define having it all different ways, but I think for many people it means having a big, fulfilling career and also having a happy family life as well. Uh, we assume that <clears throat> success at work will require harsh trade-offs at home, and that may be the case for men as well, but we seem to assume that men are okay with it uh, and, and that women won't be. And so um, we, we view the, work, the plight of the working mother as this harried, crazed, pulled in all different directions, torn phenomenon. Uh, and so I wanted to look at that and say, well, whenever a story is out there and is repeated without people thinking about it, I want to know, is it actually true? And so I got lots of women who um, met two criteria to keep track of their time for the week. Uh, one criteria is that they earned uh, at least $100,000 a year, so they had big professional jobs. And the second criteria is that they still had kids at home. <clears throat> so people who, by at least one arguable definition, had it all. And I had them keep track of their time for a week. Uh, so I wound up with uh, data on 1,001 days in the lives of women with these full lives. And I looked at how much time they worked and how much time they slept and how much time they spent on housework and exercise and television and all these other categories. And I learned that their lives were a lot more balanced than most people would think. Um, despite their big jobs, they did not work around the clock. The average work week was 44 hours a week, which is more than 40, but it's really not that much more than 40. And uh, they slept 54 hours a week, which you can do the math with seven days in a week. That's just a little bit under eight hours a day. So they were, they were sleeping enough, too. And with 168 hours in a week, if you work 44 and sleep 54, that leaves 70 hours for other things. So it's not surprising that they were able to have full family and personal lives in 70 hours because that's the equivalent of 10 hours a day. You can kind of fit a lot in in 10 hours a day. And, and so they did, and they had very good lives, and I think that deserves to be known because we have this image of people being harried and crazed, and yet many people do just fine with the juggle, and we should look at what they're doing and celebrate what they're doing and maybe borrow some of those strategies um, in our lives as well. And did you find that, that they do anything different than, than maybe the rest of the general population as far as like connectedness or setting aside time blocks to, to work or, be, or maybe be disconnected from you know, modern technology? 
Well, I think some people were, were better than others, of course. And I interviewed most of these women, and so I learned their different strategies. <clears throat> but honestly, what made them use their time well was simply that they did want to be invested at work and invested at home as well. And because there were so many different things in their lives that they wanted to devote adequate time to, they came up with creative strategies for moving work and other things around in order to make it all fit kind of like tiles on a mosaic uh, is the image I like to use. But one of the, so one of the strategies, just as an example that people would use is that they would work what I call split shifts. Uh, so they would leave work at a reasonable hour, um, spend evenings with family and then do more work at night after the kids went to bed. And this enabled them to trade off what might've been uh, TV watching time for work time instead of kid time for work time. So in the popular telling, work and family are pitted against each other. But in the reality of women's lives, it's usually work and TV that are pitted against each other. And I think that's a very different bargain and one that more people might be willing to make if they knew what it was. Uh, and in fact, women in my study watched um, not that much TV, TV. It was a rather low, uh, about four hours of TV a week, which you know isn't nothing, but it's not... 20 plus hours of TV per week, which is what the average American watches. And so that difference is where they have time to uh, work longer hours, see their kids, exercise, read, everything else. So yeah, I was stunned by the number, by the average number of hours a week. The uh, I guess the average American spends watching TV 30 hours per week, according to Nielsen. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways to measure this. So Nielsen sort of looks about whether the TV is on, uh, which lots of people do other things while the TV is on. Um, so if you're cooking dinner with the TV on, that would still count as TV time. Um, other surveys, like the American Time Use Survey, look at when TV is a primary activity. So you know you're sitting down to watch it, and that even comes out at about 20 hours a week for the average American. It is quite a bit of time. Uh, we are having leisure time. It's just we use TV as a default activity, uh, which makes sense. I mean, you don't have to hire a sitter to watch TV. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to get dressed up. You don't have to make plans with friends. It doesn't make any demands of you. Um, but if you look at surveys on how happy people are at different points in their lives, different points of their day, TV is pretty much right in the middle. Like it's better than going to the dentist, but it's a lot less fun than socializing or even reading or exercising. Uh, and, and so if you know that it's really in the middle of the road as a leisure time activity goes, uh, then hopefully that can help nudge you to figure out other things that can fill that time instead. Such as reading, perhaps. Reading, I'm a big fan of reading. And, and yes, reading actually scores higher on, on um, scales of enjoyment than, than TV does, even though reading does make more demands of you. Um, sometimes asking a little bit more of yourself is, is a good way to feel more accomplished about what you're doing. Okay, so Laura, prior to I Know How She Does It and 168 Hours, you also wrote a number of ebooks, the What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast series. What are some of the common things the most successful people you've interviewed do before breakfast? Mornings are a great time for getting stuff done. It's time that you can have for yourself and your own personal priorities before the rest of the world's priorities take over the rest of your day. And so I found that people who were making progress um, toward personal projects, who had really good personal habits, tended to use that time first thing in the day. Uh, it's not that you can't exercise after work. It's that 
most likely a client will call with something at five o'clock and you won't get out at the time you thought you would. And then you'll go straight home and not go to the gym. Whereas there aren't that many client emergencies at 6 a.m. And so it's time that you can actually guarantee you'll do it. Uh, we also tend to have the most willpower in the morning. And so that's another reason it's a good time for making progress toward personal projects. Um, generally, the things people did first thing in the morning were falling into three categories of nurturing your career, your relationships, or yourself. With the career, it could be strategic thinking about your business. It could be starting a side business. It could be doing a creative project like writing a book. Um, in terms of relationships, uh, if people weren't necessarily sure what time they could leave work in the evening, so family dinner might not happen, family breakfast could happen, or um, having a coffee date with your spouse first thing in the morning. You can also uh, meet friends for breakfast or have a good uh, breakfast group, breakfast networking group. And, and in terms of yourself, this is just a great time for exercise or for journaling, meditating, uh, spiritual practices, any of those things make great morning activities. And Lori, you're a busy woman yourself, married, four kids. I, I assume you employ most, if not all, of the practices that you write about. But what are some of the things that you find to be most personally um, effective in making sure you have the time to do everything you want to do and can have it all? Well, I take some of my own advice. <laughs> it's a constant uh, battle at times to, to make it all happen. But uh, I think that some advice works well at different points versus others. My morning routine is not particularly what I hope it will be in the future at the moment. I love exercising in the morning, but it's not always easy to make that happen. Um, I also like getting up early to work, but right now I have a nine-month-old baby, and so my mornings are pretty much set by him. Uh, when he gets up, I get up, and it's always a little earlier than I want it to be. Um, but I know that I will get back there later when he's older, and, and so um, I'm, I'm looking forward to that while still trying to enjoy this time now. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the thing that's really been helpful for me is keeping track of my time. I have been, I've logged my time for various weeks over the years, and I've been actually doing it pretty consistently now for about five months. And I want to see where it goes and where I have space and, and what can fit in. And, and the good news is a lot can fit in. Um, I think when I describe my life to people, sometimes it sounds a bit busy with four kids and uh, two working parents and traveling parents, as it were, and I run as well and lots of stuff going on, kid activities, but there still seems to be a lot of space as well. Uh, there's a fair amount of open space in my life and keeping track of my time reminds me of that, um, that I could in fact be busier if I want to. I, I really don't want to be, but there is still space and that's important to see. Yeah. Okay, so a little blast from the past, Laura. Listeners might be interested to know that I worked for the literary agent who represented you on one of your very first books, Grind Hopping. For listeners out there that are interested in some of your earliest work, what was Grind Hopping about, and do some of the same rules still apply in today's workforce? So this book was about how um, young people were hopping out of the grind to start their own businesses at a young age. Uh, the normal course of entrepreneurship is to work for a while in an established business and then go out on your own when you've built up the expertise and capital to do so. And I argued that it was actually a wiser career move to start something when you were young, learn skills that you would need, um, and then you could hop into other organizations later as a result of those skills, often at a higher 
place than you might be otherwise. Uh, and, and so that was the, the point of that book. And I told a lot of stories about young entrepreneurs. And I think, you know, many of those rules do apply. We all have to be in control of our own careers now. Uh, there is no set ladder to climb. And so starting out, you have to think, well, what do I want my career to look like? And how could I build those skills? And is there a way I can make sure that I learn those skills instead of having to pay my dues for years before I'm given even the opportunity to try? And often working in smaller organizations and, and maybe even in one you start yourself is the way to make that happen. And as I mentioned in the intro, you're a frequent contributor to Fast Company. Is there anything that you're working on that listeners can expect to see from you soon on fastcompany.com? So I've been working a little bit on on pondering what a perfect 40-hour work week would look like. I think this is an interesting concept. Most people assume they don't work 40 hours a week, but 40 hours a week is not just in the office 9 to 5. If you do that, you're probably working in the lower 30s because uh, people take breaks and should take breaks, and we can't be 100% on all the time. But if you were going to work 40 solid, extremely productive hours, what would they look like? And I think that... um, they would have fewer hours devoted to sort of the core production part of the job than we often think makes sense. Um, Because I think you have to spend a lot of parts of a good work week on nurturing various relationships, both internally and externally. You also have to spend time building your skills. Um, You need to spend time planning and strategizing. And, And so what amount of time would be good for all those things? And what would be the right amount to keep your career moving forward while still working a reasonable 40 hour work week? So I've been playing around with that and I have a post hopefully going up next year, next week about that. Okay, nice. Uh, Well, Laura, great food for thought and a great note to close on. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about how to make every hour count. We appreciate you joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about Laura Vanderkam or any of the books we discussed today, you can visit her website at www.lauravanderkam.com. There you can order her books, read some of her most popular articles, and watch clips of a number of her speaking segments. You can also follow Laura on Twitter at at LVanderkam. That's V-A-N-D-E-R-K-A-M. Thanks once again to Laura Vanderkam for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Now for our next episode of the podcast, we're going to do something a little different. If you listen to our episode on disruptive innovation in the media and entertainment space, you might remember that we teased the fact that we have an iOS app coming for the Innovation Engine podcast. That's right, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio aren't enough to hold us. We need an app of our very own. So for the next episode of the Innovation Engine, we're going to do what we're calling a behind-the-screens episode. We'll be talking with some of the key players that are conceiving, designing, and developing the Innovation Engine podcast app. Stay tuned for that, because I guarantee you, you don't want to miss it. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global, a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.